coming up. It's a family. It's our family. It's hard to go against a family. He's been with us for 20 years. For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson. And I'm Reed Redmond. You're listening to The Daily Crime. Good morning, and thank you for coming today. In Marion County, Ohio, investigators have identified the victim of a cold case dating back more than 30 years. They called the Marion County Sheriff's Office on October 14, 2020, with information about two biological brothers and one biological sister who were still living uh, from the information DNA Doe Project provided. In Chula Vista, California, an arrest has been made in the case of a missing mother of three who's not been seen since January of this year. As the evidence unfolded in this case, meticulously and carefully, block by block, it pointed in one direction, that May was murdered. Reed, you've been looking into a case involving a victim that investigators had been unable to identify for decades. Take us back to where it all started and what happened. Yeah, this is a case that goes back to July of 1989. That's when a body showed up in a creek in Marion County, Ohio. The body was found clad in black Adidas tennis shoes, Dakota jeans, a short-sleeved black and red striped sports-style shirt with a three-button pocket in the front and a multicolored knitted sweater with diamonds and a zigzag design. And by the time the body was found, Marion County Sheriff Matt Bales said that it was significantly decomposed. And so back in 1989... That made it incredibly difficult to identify someone for a little context. This was 1989 was the same year that a conviction was first overturned using DNA evidence. That was the case of a man named Gary Dotson in Illinois who'd been wrongfully convicted of rape in the late 70s. A defense attorney who took on Dotson's case had heard about DNA testing that was going on in England. And he asked the governor in Illinois to order testing in Dotson's case. And ultimately it showed that he could not have done the crime that he was convicted of. But that early usage of DNA evidence... It's not really the kind of thing that you can use to identify a victim where you don't have a sample to test the victim's DNA against. And so back in 1989, they were unable to identify this person found in Marion County. Reed, what details, if any, then were investigators able to learn about this victim? And what did that mean for their investigation back in the 80s and 90s? At the time, they really weren't able to learn much, according to the local sheriff, pretty much uh, just that he was a man, and that he had black hair. Uh, There was an autopsy conducted in 1989, and it showed that the cause of death was suffocation, and there was a subsequent manner of death from an injury that they thought might be a gunshot wound or even an arrow wound. Uh, They thought that either of those things could have potentially caused this man's death, but whatever the exact cause, the manner of death was determined to be homicide. And like I said, DNA testing at the time was sort of a dead end for a case like this, but investigators did make some other efforts, most notably investigators with Ohio State University and the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation made reconstructions of his appearance, and then they presumably spread those around in the hopes that someone might see the reconstruction and recognize it as a missing loved one or a neighbor they hadn't seen in a while, but that didn't happen, and so that was kind of the end of the investigation at the time. It went cold. So, Reed, then what led investigators back to this case in recent years? Well, we obviously have a lot of tools available now that we didn't have back in 1989. And so in 2019, after the case had been cold for 30 years, the sheriff's office decided to send the man's skull to a nonprofit called the DNA Doe Project. The mission of the DNA Doe Project is to restore the names of the unidentified. To date, we have solved a total of 70 cases, eight of which were from Ohio, two 
being in Marion County. And I know that the DNA Doe Project has come up in some other cases that we've covered on this podcast. What they do is they use genetic genealogy to try to identify John and Jane Doe's. And that's a newer method where instead of simply running a DNA profile through a database and hoping it turns up a match, they'll use DNA testing to try to find genetic relatives of an unidentified person, maybe a second cousin or a third cousin. And then from there, it's kind of traditional genealogy research using family trees to try to get to the person that they're looking for. And so investigators in Ohio sent off this skull in 2019 to the DNA Doe Project. In June of 2019, we obtained this case from Detective Utley in the Marion Sheriff's excuse me, the Marion County Sheriff's Office. Biological samples were sent to DNA solutions for extraction, but unfortunately, the DNA obtained was insufficient for sequencing. From there, it was actually sent to the International Commission on Missing Persons, where they were able to extract enough DNA to be useful. And then from there, the DNA Doe Project was able to use genetic genealogy to track down this man's biological siblings. We had a first cousin, a first cousin once removed, and a third cousin match who were all opted into GEDmatch's database and in family tree DNA. We use these matches to reconstruct their own family trees to figure out how not only they were related to each other, but what common ancestors they descended from. It's just so hard to imagine getting that phone call. I mean, what happens at that point? Do they track these siblings down and say, you know, we think your brother was killed in 1989. How did they respond to that? So as it turns out, their story matched up. These siblings hadn't heard from their brother since 1989. What they told investigators is actually that their family had last been in contact with him the same month the body was discovered, that he was last seen walking away from his father's house in Galleon, Ohio. And all these years, they assumed that their brother had moved away to start another life, is how they put it, so they never actually reported him missing, and that explains why there wasn't a local missing persons case that matched up with the John Doe's description back in 1989. And so it's through contacting these siblings and hearing the story that investigators have finally been able to identify this John Doe after 30 years, and they've identified him as 33-year-old John Krasinski. These test results came back recently and confirmed that the homicide victim was John C. Krasinski. He was 33 years of age at the time of his death. He was from Galleon, Ohio. All right, so that answers one of two big questions, who the victim was. Any clues at this point as to who killed him? Unfortunately, no, not that investigators have revealed publicly. But, you know, if this is going to be solved, this is a necessary first step in that process. Once you have the identity of the victim confirmed, that opens up presumably a bunch of other investigative avenues that weren't available to them prior. You know, they can track down other family members, people who knew this person, coworkers, and they can ask the public for tips and give them more information. And of course, uh, it would have been great to have all this information back in 1989, but at least now there's a possibility or, or a hope that this might lead to this case being solved. We're asking that anyone that may have information on this case to contact the Marion County Sheriff's Office, help us get justice for John. As for the family of John Krasinski, they haven't been doing interviews with the media, but they did give a statement to the sheriff that he read at the press conference when they announced this development. And they thanked the sheriff's office, the DNA Doe Project, anyone who'd been involved with the case over the years. And their statement ends with a call for anyone with information to come forward. As the department moves into the next phase of investigation, we ask that anyone with information please come forward in order to bring justice to John and closure to our family. Our family members remain hopeful that even though after all these years, the truth will be revealed. Thank you.
The husband of a Chula Vista mother of three missing since January has been arrested. Larry Miliete was arrested at his home earlier this week. This comes more than nine months after Maya Miliete was first reported missing. Her body has still not been found. Will, tell us what we know about Maya and her disappearance back in January. Yeah, Maya Miliete was a Filipino-American woman. She's a mother of three, four, nine, and 11 years old. Uh, she also went by the name May, so you'll hear her name Maya and then also sometimes May. Uh, she worked uh, last year, at least, in 2020 as a civilian contract specialist for the Navy. She loves camping, off-roading in the desert. She recently had bought a dirt bike. She adored her children, played guitar, liked to sing. There are videos of her singing with her kids at home in Chula Vista. She met her husband, Larry, when they were both teenagers. So they had actually been married for 20 years at the time of her disappearance. It would have been 21 years uh, later this year. Reports are from the San Diego County District Attorney and also from police and also family and friends that she wanted a divorce, that their relationship was toxic. And that actually is a word that the San Diego County District Attorney used in a press conference. And that becomes a key element in this investigation. Maya's sister reported her missing on January 9th. She was last seen January 7th, so a few days before she was reported missing. That turns out to be the same day she called a divorce lawyer, according to police reports. Neighbors also heard gunshots coming from the home that night, according to reports. So there's actually reported audio of those gunshots captured by a neighbor surveillance camera. Police were not called that night. The timeline goes like this. On January 11th, so a few days after she was reported missing, the searches started. And then later in January, the first search warrants. And early on, it was reported that Larry was no longer cooperating with police. In early April, there were search warrants at Larry's aunt's and uncle's home. By late April, the FBI joined the investigation. And in July, 39-year-old Larry Miliete was named a person of interest. And that's according to court records that were unsealed over the summer. And so since that time, since July, what has the investigation looked like and what evidence do Chula Vista police say that they now have against Larry Miliete? Reed, this has really been a massive investigation. 87 people have been interviewed, according to police. More than 130 tips have come in. There have been 67 search warrants. And on Tuesday of this week, the Chula Vista SWAT team moved in on Larry Miliete's home to make an arrest. Today at 11.42 a.m., the Chula Vista Police Department SWAT team served an arrest warrant and arrested Larry Maliette for the murder of his wife. Larry was taken into custody at his home and was alone at the time of his arrest. Larry Maliette, May's husband, is responsible for May's murder and disappearance. Larry Miliete is now facing one count of murder and also a charge of illegal possession of an assault rifle. San Diego County District Attorney Summer Steffen spoke at a press conference this week, uh, along with others, and she outlined their evidence and what led Larry or what might have led Larry Miliete to kill his wife. News 8's Kelly Hesedal covered this press conference. Now, the district attorney, uh, Summer Steffen, she laid out a portion of uh, their case against him, basically saying the motive in this case was that May was going to leave him, to divorce him, and he didn't want that, uh, that he was even using spellcasters to try and get May to stay in the relationship. Uh, the district attorney also talked about uh, security footage near the home showing uh, Larry Miliete's black Lexus parked at the home away from the cameras in a way that he could load a body into it and not be caught on camera. Uh, the DA said the when 
police interviewed him and asked him where he was the night they believe May was killed. His story just kept changing. Uh, at one point, he said he went to the beach with the four-year-old child, uh, but couldn't point out on a map exactly where the beach was. So uh, his story just didn't add up. And the DA also talked about evidence, uh, including financial records, cell phone records, navigation system records. They say they have evidence to believe May was killed. Her body was dumped somewhere. They don't know exactly where. Uh, so a lot of information in this news conference, a lot of information to digest. Reed, I'm sure we'll be hearing more about those spells. Uh, here, in fact, is News 8 with a few more details on that really bizarre aspect of the, of the case. According to Stefan, those spells captured through messages to Maya included asking that Maya become incapacitated, to getting into an accident, to breaking her bones so she wouldn't be able to leave the house. Thus displaying his homicidal ideations to harm me. And as I mentioned at the top, Maya Miliete's body has not been found. How might that affect this case when and if it does go to trial? Well, yeah, let me start by saying that the district attorney and police do believe that, you know, she was murdered and that her body was dumped. And so there is still a search going on for Maya Miliete's body. These cases do happen, a, a no-body case, they're typically called. In fact, legal experts say it's not uncommon, and with circumstantial evidence, a conviction is possible. News 8 talked to attorney Paul Finkst, a former San Diego County district attorney. It's not a Hail Mary or a particularly challenging thing that there's no body because jurors understand intuitively that a mother of children this age is not likely just to wander off and never come back voluntarily nine months later. So they understand that there's been foul play here. The question is, whose foul play is it? Has there been a response or have we heard anything from Larry Miliete directly or from his attorney at this point? According to police, Larry Miliete continues to say he was not involved in Maya's disappearance. His attorney, Bonita Martinez, the attorney, again, for Larry Miliete, said, quote, I received a courtesy call from the deputy district attorney alerting me to the arrest of Larry. He's going to be charged with murder. This is a surprise to me since they have no proof Maya is dead and I believe she is still alive. And what do we know about the three children? Where have they been throughout this investigation, and where are they at now? The three children have been with their father, Larry Miliete, during this time. He has had custody. That is no longer the case. Reports are from family and also from police that the children are safe and with family. Earlier this year, you spoke with a reporter at News 8 in San Diego, Abby Alford, and she'd actually spoken with Larry Miliete on the phone the same day that a vigil was being held for his wife, not long after she disappeared, right? Yes, Abby Alford at News 8 in San Diego was able to reach Larry Miliete on his phone and had a conversation with him. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, it was the day that a vigil was being held. Larry Miliete actually dropped his kids off at that vigil. He did not stay around for it. So family, friends, a lot of supporters, people searching for Maya were there, but not her husband. Here's a portion of that conversation that Abby had with Larry that day. So, I mean, why do you think, what do you think happened? I mean, there's no reason that you can think of, of, you know, why she wouldn't be here, be here for her, her kids. She wouldn't miss her daughter's birthday. Um, uh, you know, I don't want to speculate. There's a lot of speculations and, you know, people kind of like throw these, um, uh, I don't know, speculations out, but right now, um, I just want to focus on how, you know, to get her back home safe and sound and 
Um, yeah, that's it. And then have police given any indication yeah. of, at all about where she is? Oh, uh, no. Right now, but they, you know, I have full confidence in, like I said, uh, the CVPD and the Navy um, because they they put maximum resources on our case. So, you know, this is what they do. This is what they do best. Um, I'm pretty sure that, you know, they're going to do their job, and um, that's why I'm really hopeful and confident that, you know, um, things will work out. So again, Reed, that's just a, a brief portion of a of a longer conversation that Abby Alford had early on in this case with Maya's husband, Larry. Abby commented and spoke to us at the time about the fact that he seemed to not show a lot of emotions with the caveat that a lot of innocent people might not show a lot of emotion. But it struck a lot of listeners and also viewers of News 8 as odd at the time. Uh, if you'd like to hear that full interview and actually a lot more about this case. We did cover it on our weekly podcast, True Crime Chronicles, uh, back in May. So uh, if you're a regular listener to that show or you are searching for it, you can find True Crime Chronicles wherever you listen to podcasts. It is the May 3rd episode, episode number 99, to get full details, at least at that time, long before Larry Mayette was arrested. All right. This is certainly a case that we'll continue to keep an eye on. Thanks, Will. You bet. For The Daily Crime, I'm Will Johnson, along with Reed Redman. You can listen to The Daily Crime five days a week, Monday through Friday. You can also hear us on our weekly show, True Crime Chronicles. 